So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right! Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. Coming up on Money Beat, the giant money manager BlackRock is bringing robot-driven investing to its Main Street customers. What does that mean for the retail investor? What does that mean for Wall Street? We are going to talk about the rise of the machines on the street. Coming up next. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Money Beat for today's podcast, Terminator Music. Do, 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 do. Remember that? Terminator. So ominous. And, Terminator you know? 2 was the best. Yes. Ooh. Oh, Terminator. That's one of the best movies, too, by the way. Chris Dietrich. Why do I want Terminator music for today's podcast? Because in case you... We're talking about the rise of the machines. Rise of the machines on Wall Street. Well, uh, uh, maybe you saw yesterday's page one story, Wall Street Journal, Sarah Krauss writing it about the uh, money manager BlackRock turning over, well, not the entire business. I was going to joke a little bit. But I mean, t- t- BlackRock basically taking quants, taking machine learning to a new level on Wall Street. Sarah Krauss is here with us. Also, Chris Dietrich, who covers the markets for the Money Beat blog is here as well. And uh d- is this the rise of machines on Wall Street, Sarah Cross? Uh, for BlackRock, it is. Um, this is their sort of latest and, and most severe ever overhaul of their stock picking unit. And what you see is basically an acknowledgement that it's getting harder for human beings to sit in a room and try to beat the market by handpicking stocks. And so what BlackRock is doing is trying to sort of put a greater emphasis on robots, on quantitative investing, and bringing what they've offered to pension funds and large institutional investors to retail investors. And so to do that, they're sort of overhauling repositioning many of their traditional stock funds, turning them into quant funds and and sort of and knocking down the prices in the process. Wow. How long did it take them to make that decision? What kind of went into that? I mean, I guess it's one thing to look at, you know, numbers, right? This is all mm-hmm. this is all kind of software driven stuff. But I mean, like, how, how long did were they thinking about it? What kind of prompted it? I mean, for this, for for their challenges in the stock picking unit, it goes back many years. This isn't yeah. just a six month or even a one year thing. I mean, the last time that they tried to overhaul this unit was 2012, and in that one, they were trying to sort of improve performance around the edges and make certain adjustments to the process to improve performance, and that really didn't bear fruit in a meaningful way. And so, this late or mid last year, they hired Mark Weisman, who had been the head of the CPPIB in Canada to come in and do a more fundamental review of what's going right and wrong. And so he spent, he joined in September, he spent his first six months well, there. What is the CPP? The largest Canadian pension so fund. Sorry. Oh, okay. um, and so they brought him in to do a review and, and he's seen as a potential successor to Larry Fink. And so in some ways, this is a big first test. Um, and he went through their lineup, what, they, what was working, what wasn't, and determined that um, sort of overhauling it in this way is the better way wow. forward. What are we ta- what are we talking about I guess when we talk about a quant fund it's interesting to me cuz there's so many different processes on Wall Street right and when we think about robots there there are processes out there that are you know basically unleashing 
um, a computer to, to to sort of make up its own mind. In this case, at least I, if right, I'm understanding this is a it, machine learning, right? This is this is this is sort of a different methodological process, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a more model and computer driven process. And I would say another piece of this for them is figuring out how to centralize their research and the sort of data sets that they use to select stocks and and try, starting to create an engine that one that that will increasingly power the decision that those funds are making. So right now in a lot of active management shops you you may have a team of analysts or sort of disparate researchers that may or may not be feeding their findings or consensus into one place and what BlackRock's trying to do with some of the changes that they announced this week is start to create that sort of research hub and get smarter about that um, and and use that to feed some of the signals that are that are driving investment decisions. What did that mean for the stock pickers? Uh, there were layoffs associated with this. There were seven portfolio managers who were let go. Um, but across the board, as part of this overhaul, there were several dozen. So this is um, involved some cuts as well. Which is, uh, you know, in every other industry, when you've seen this type of automation go in, it's, it's the same exact thing. I mean, humans lose jobs. Like, that's just the way that these Yeah, sort of go. the next frontier of the robots. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think one of the interesting things to see this coming from BlackRock, which is the sort of 500-pound gorilla, you know, this, yeah, they're the biggest absolutely. asset manager in the world. They have more than $5 trillion in assets. And this is them saying, like, look, stock picking in the U.S. particularly is just not not going well. Why? Why? But, but Can the, we talk about that for a well, second? I, want, I actually want to back up because there are two things I think is important. You hinted at it or sort of talked a little bit about it. But BlackRock for years has underperformed. Yes. I mean, they're, they, their stock picking unit, and one of the reasons why they looked to, you know, I think we're probably looking at it, was their underperformance, right? Yes, yes. The other thing, though, is it speaks to, I think, I wonder if this is so much about the active versus passive and much more about mm-hmm. the reality. Like, this is, you know, sort of similar to. You know, um, com- you know, computers are driving. You know, drive. You know, ca- you know, computers driving cars now, um, and and all the other aspects of life that computers are sort of taking over. Where the process of picking stocks, we can we could sort of create an algorithm to do that and do it just as well as or better than humans. So why not do that and do it cheaper? Right, and you you see that in some of the like factor driven funds, for example, you're boil you're looking at your portfolio and saying, okay, what's driving the returns in this? Can it be boiled down to sort of common denominators? And and you don't necessarily need a human to be looking at those and then saying, okay, if if this is what's driving performance, then we pick X going forward. Um, and I think that's what you see under the hood here. And how much is this different from also like you know kind of robo advisors? Well, robo-advisors are helping to automatically allocate to different asset classes, whereas quantitative funds are using computer models or algorithms to actually decide what to buy and sell within a fund. Let's, uh, you know, it seems like a natural place to take a break. So let's take a break. We have an important message. Do not go away because on the other side of this, I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. ADP knows anything you hear. Anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. News on the go. Whenever you want it, wherever you want it. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. 
I, I literally thought of that about 30 seconds before we went to break. <laughs> it was almost as well thought out as your uh, Warren Buffett uh, <laughs> impersonation. Oh, wait until... Do you yeah, have yeah. a Warren Buffett impersonation? No, it's a great no, one. The, the, the good people no. of our, our podcast audience haven't heard that one yet, but it'll it, it's going to come. Oh, stay it's tuned, coming. folks. Yeah, stay tuned. No, no, no. I think Grocer's jealous. He is. He doesn't like it, but uh, it's it's very good. Uh, we are back. Sarah Krause, Chris Dietrich, Stephen Grosser, Paul Vigna talking about BlackRock. BlackRock saying to investors, come with me if you want to live. Oh. <laughs> uh, talking about BlackRock turning on the machines and My- getting rid of the humans. And here, here's sort of a broad question, Sarah, that certainly BlackRock should be able to answer, but, but I'll ask it to you since they're not here. If they're turning these things over to computers and they're implicitly saying that humans can't beat the machines, is the advantage then to me as an investor only that they have better machines? than Like why am I going to BlackRock if all they're doing is flipping a switch and giving me some kind of computer-designed investment advice? I mean, fair enough. There are many different shops on Wall Street that you can turn to for quantitative investing. And I think some of that will come down to price. Um, And I think that you do see some of that here, which is knocking some of the fund fees down by as much as half or roughly Mm -hmm. half. Um, And so, yeah, I think there will be a a price component to it. But I do think that you're right that as we see more firms sort of rely on this or this become more mainstream, there is an element of – for retail investors of of starting to look under the hood and saying who's doing – what in what ways, what's the governance around the algorithms that are being used, how do I really understand how things are being bought and sold and how it all works. Um, So I think that that's sort of a next leg of this conversation. I think people are used to the Will Danoff or Peter Lynch, you know, who they sort of, they can picture the process of going through company filings and really like making a human decision. We can relate to that. But I think that there is a bit more education that needs to happen here in terms of how it all works and how that differs from firm to firm. And it's a great question because it's not it's not easy to tell these strategies apart. Some of them can be created fairly recently, so you're not you're not operating on um, a track record, right. right? So a lot of these, these strategies can be created in an academic setting um, and look really well, look look you know like shoot um, shoot the moon on paper, but then right. implement, implementing them is, is very difficult. So it does pose, I think, new challenges for investors to really differentiate whether BlackRock's quantitative secret sauce around value is, is different than anybody else. How much does it sort of change, you know, like ETFs, it seems like, have sort of also prepared investors for this, where price is really a big part of your investment decision, your fees. And on top of that, like when you start talking like, you know, smart beta, things like that, that have come into the fund world, I mean, that seems to all be sort of setting this up for where the real differentiating factor, you know, somewhat performance, but will be also... And I think one interesting thing that you're starting to see in the asset management industry broadly right now, not only fee compression, but um, more folks thinking about fees on a spectrum, which is, you know, how how much are we promising outperformance here? And if we know that we can't shoot the lights out, should we lower our fee? So Alliance Bernstein, for example, um, moved to fulcrum fees on some funds. Um, you know, Janice has some form of those as well. Um, with BlackRock, I think you see this as, you know, they have these new quantitative funds for retail investors that are the sort of replacing the traditional U.S. large cap fund, for example. And then they have other slightly more expensive ones that make more concentrated bets that go further out over their skis. And you sort of pay for 
for that risk-reward balance. So I think you start to see a little more differentiation in price. I mean, AQR does this in some of their funds as well. It's more, you know, what's actually on offer in terms of risk-reward, and are we scaling the price appropriately to that? I was just going to go, getting back to the robo-advisor. I mean, like, how long before we... Humans aren't necessary at all. I mean, like, you can go to your robo-advisor, have them allocate. They can allocate to funds that are being run by, you know, quants and, you know, investing your money that way. I mean... You can do that. I'm going to sound like Jason Zweiger, at least um, take a line from him where I... I, I a big portion of wealth advice has been hand-holding, emotional comfort, stay the course, that type of thing. Now, I'm not to, it's not to say that no financial advisors have value. They absolutely can in some cases, um, depending on what your goal and time horizon is. But I do think that you're right that this all raises the question of what is the role of the human in the investing process going forward? And can it be automated, particularly at a lower price? And also, if, like, if you're hand-holding, you, I mean, it would seem to me if the human being... you need being, to pay 1% plus for hand-holding. Well, right. And the other thing is, like, how many humans... You need to be doing that. I mean, like you could have you you know you set up your office in you know whatever town across the United States, and that one person can hold the whole. You know, you think they could handle a lot more customers if they're not you know actively trying to make the investment decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do think you'll continue to see a headcount fall throughout the industry, and even you know last night, for example, we also wrote about Leg Mason hiring or firing, excuse me, three percent of their corporate staff. So it's about thirty people, but it's a continued. There's this continued trimming that's happening across the industry, um, and I think having those sort of two examples happening even this week sort of shows you that this is an area that's very much emotion. One of the questions, and I don't know if you really have many thoughts on this, is it's sort of interesting the man that decided at uh, BlackRock that who decided to pursue this, you know, going with the computers. Uh, coming from the Canadian Pension Fund, which was historically had been making huge stock bets, basically, in buying companies, investing in, you know, um, leverage buyouts and things like that, which is, you know, um, the ultimate sort of stock picker in many ways. And to then make the decision, you know, that, you know, oh, we, you know, quants and using computers are the best way. I just I find it very interesting. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I would say his responsibility there spans not only equity, but also alternatives, which I think, to your point, is like a little more in line with some of the things that you saw at the Canadian Pension Fund. But these Canadian Pension Funds, you know, made a mark by essentially, you know, you you hadn't seen pension funds actually, you know, go – they would – pension funds have been investing in private equity. You know, the Canadian pension funds, by and large, went – you know, stepped away from just being – you know, you know, investing private equity funds and started actually, you know, being their partners in doing buyouts. And, I, th- you know, I think that's just fascinating, you know, because that is really the ultimate of stock picking. And, you know, and one like of the, very similar to what Buffett now, you know, essentially yeah, does. Fair. I mean, one of the other things that when I was talking with Mark Weisman about the decisions that were made here, that he made the point that, that BlackRock should think more as a bigger owner of the companies in which they invest in their actively managed stock portfolios. He's saying, we have this massive iShares exchange traded fund unit. So we're not coming to you as an active manager that owns half a percent of your company. We can harness 
the scale that we have from our large exchange traded fund business and the ownership that it, that gives us as more of a five or six percent owner. So we have a bigger seat at the table and we should be getting better corporate access, which then in turn, you know, could or should help performance. So, it, you know, to that point that you're making about his background and the approach that that fund had taken, that I think that's kind of that thinking is in line with it. How does that align with Larry's sort of view, Larry Fink's view, you know, because he's been very critical of activist investors. Um, and their short termism mainly is what he is. He's sort of been critical of. Right, I think that those investors. can be two different things, though. Right, I mean, that's activist what... investing is taking a stake and agitating for change. I think what what BlackRock would argue it does in the stocks that it holds is as a long term investor investing client assets. You know, sort of put, you're putting money to work for a long time, so you're going to the kinds of changes that you want to see in theory are ones that are beneficial over the longer time horizon, not right. just we'll get this stock up and then we'll sell it because I can't sell it out of ETFs. No, but there has been a conflict, and Larry Fink has been very much, I think, front and center in sort of this conflict between the activists mm-hmm. who say the big fund managers like you know your Fidelis, your BlackRock have allowed sort of corporate, um, you know, the you know the the C-suite to basically have companies to get away with underperforming and not and not being accountable. And Larry has, you know, pushed back against, you know, that criticism. Absolutely. I think Larry and, um, and Bill McNabb at Vanguard, I think, and yeah. State Street, I mean, I think they've all, I think there's, there's that, part of a learning process happening yeah. too, right, for the big passive investors, which is we have this scale. How are we going to use it in a meaningful way? And I think that they've sort of gone on the defensive and, and really started to devote more resources to getting smart about that and having a seat at the table. So, yeah, I think you're right. Can we uh, can we switch gears for for one second? Yeah. Not even a huge switch of gears. Uh, another BlackRock Larry Fink story written by Sarah <laughs> Krauss. I know where you're going with this. Yeah, we we have to talk about this sure. for a minute or Let's so. I it. mean, uh, really interesting story about Lawrence Fink, BlackRock's Larry Fink, being part of an exhibit at the Whitney. Uh, t- t- tell us about that. Sure, uh, BlackRock was featured, and and Larry, a quote by Larry, was featured in an exhibit at the Whitney Biennial that was done by Occupy Museums, which is a group that originated out of the Occupy Wall Street protests in 2011. Um, and so there was an exhibit on display in the Whitney's Biennial, this huge display that exhibits you know up and coming and young artists mm-hmm. and new artworks um, that shows the growth in their assets under management the student loan delinquencies, the growing price of art, and sort of just makes the point that there is a sort of group of financial elites or this group of the financial world that um, drives up art prices by um, investing in it, but also benefits from investing in the debt um, held by banks that have lent to artists who needed that money to be able to create their work. And so it's just a a broad commentary on artist debt um, and what that means for cultural institutions and cultural equality. Did uh, did BlackRock did Fink know that that was going in? Did they? I'm sure they didn't. He have to responded give approval, in our story but... today. We have a quote from him uh, that says he looks forward to seeing it on his next uh, visit to the Whitney, and that he uh, celebrates art um, and is a fan of contemporary art. So, oh. um, you know, interested to be in the museum the day he goes to see oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, anything else, folks? I think we've gone from robots want, to contemporary robots. art. I mean, sky's yeah. the limit. I want more, uh, you know, Paul, you know, doing Arnold Schwarzenegger impressions. Noises you want to make? I wish I did. Warren sound Buffett, effects, sorry, I mean, not anything. noises. That's yeah, a, sound effects. Right, I'm right. So we're, sorry. We're, we're sound pros. Effects. We're professionals, Sarah. <laughs> this isn't just you know squawking over here. This you're is, just jealous. We're doing of, this for real. You're just jealous of Chuck Jaffe's soundboard. That's what it really comes. Don't down we miss to. Chuck Jaffe's soundboard? Chuck Jaffe had this soundboard, Sarah. He because he did his own podcast as well, 
uh, he had this soundboard with, you know, th- 60 different, he could, anything you would say, he had his- Movie his lines. Movie lines, sounds, you know, he had this whole soundboard. So, yes, I'm going to try to something recreate Something to aspire that. to. It is something to aspire to. It was in his house, too, right? Is yeah, because right? his studio was right. in his house. Oh, wow, right? an in-home- in-home soundboard. soundboard. Wow. How would that be? How great would that be to carry that around with you? You know, like if your wife comes up and says something, you know, are you going to do the garbage? Bah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that your marriage would go really well if you introduced that. You think? Yeah. yeah I think that might be, a, <laughs> might be a, I feel no, it would not be an improvement. <laughs> oh, my God. It would be terrible. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't need that. All right. Uh, everyone, thank you for listening. We appreciate your time as always. And we will catch up with you. And, hey, uh, you have something to say? You want to let us know? We want to hear from you. Write us. We are podcasts at DowJones.com. And we'll talk to you soon. For more podcasts, check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. Become a subscriber on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And now look for us on the Google Play Music app on Android devices. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.